what the author is saying to us. And, and my hope is that at the end of this study of 2 Corinthians, that we will be equipped to interact with this book personally and in our families for, for decades to come. And that, that we'll be able to, to get a bird's eye view of what Paul is writing here. And, and let me say this. I mentioned this last week, but just, just to continue to hammer this home, I really believe that the weekly... Uh, participation in the Word of God through preaching, reading, conversations. Jesus prays in John 17 and his, his great high priestly prayer, John 17, 17. He says, uh, sanctify them by your truth. Your Word is truth. And so I think patiently over time, God uses His Word to change our lives. So I'm praying for the fruit of that. Um, through Hope Bible Church. Okay, so we've chosen 2 Corinthians uh, to start for many reasons, um, mostly concerning the topics that Paul is going to cover in this letter, and we'll, we'll get into those. I'm also going to assume that for many of you, 2 Corinthians is, is uncharted territory, even in the New Testament. Like, we're not talking like Ezekiel uncharted territory, but, but just in, in terms of the New Testament, um, 2 Corinthians is a, is a book that a lot of preachers don't get around to, I'll just be frank, I think a lot of preachers get through 1 Corinthians and they say, that was a lot, I'm, I'm never doing that again. And I, and I think people don't get back to 2 Corinthians. In, in a church that I was at previously, a, a gentleman, um, a, a pastor, with, had ultimately had preached through the whole Bible, and 2 Corinthians, I think, was one of the last two that he got to. So 2 Corinthians isn't covered a whole lot, um, but it has a lot has a lot for us to learn, and I'm so excited. I'm so excited already for the things that we're going to see in this. So let me give you some context this morning. Why is Paul writing? Who is he writing to? And that's where we're going to we're going to spend our time today. And, and thankfully, we do get a lot of context from Second Corinthians, both both from the Book of Acts and Acts chapter 18, where we'll be, and then even from First Corinthians, we learn a lot about what's going on in the church in Corinth um, from the Book of. Of 1 Corinthians. Let me say this. Big picture, right off the gate. Paul is writing to the Corinthians in this letter out of a sense of unbounded relief. He is writing because he is so excited because after years of struggling with this church, he has finally received good news. Titus has come to him and has told him Things are going okay in Corinth. And he sits down and he writes this letter to them. Because he's so excited. Let me read to you. You can turn there if you want. Uh, first, 2 Corinthians 7. And th this gives you a sense of, of the, 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 the emotion of this book for the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 6. This is verse 6. But God comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming... Oh, not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. He told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so I rejoice still more. For even I made you grieve with my letter. I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief. So that you suffered no loss through us. That's that right there. If you want to take a nugget of why Paul is writing this letter, that's it. Because finally, the Corinthians are understanding what it is that 
this, and others have been saying, and he is absolutely ecstatic. Right? So here's what I want to do this morning. Introduce uh, the book of 2 Corinthians to you. We're going to walk through the progression of events that leads to this letter. Right? And I think that will help us to understand it. And then we'll very quickly at the end, I just want to take the first two verses, the you know, the sort of you know, the flyover verses, you know, the ones that we skip real fast if we're ready to get into the meat of the, the letter. We'll just really quickly take verses one and two, which is Paul's reading, and, and, and try to understand that in light of what we learned here. So Turn with me now back over to Acts chapter 18. And that's where we're going to be for the, the bulk of our time this morning. Acts chapter 18 records uh, Paul's arrival in Corinth. Alright, so most people think around AD 49, Paul walked from Athens into the city of Corinth. And you can go look at this on a map later. You can Google uh, Corinth. And you can see that Corinth exists on the, on the Peloponnesian Peninsula. Remember the Peloponnesian Wars? That's, that's, that has to do with the, that, that peninsula right there. So Athens is down at the tip of Greece. And then there is the Isthmus. I mentioned the Isthmus a few, a few weeks ago. The Isthmus is a, is a bridge of land that connects mainland Greece with the Peloponnesian Peninsula. Okay? And so that's a land bridge. So Paul comes and he work, walks across that land bridge. And, and if Athens was known for its wisdom and knowledge and understanding, Corinth was known for its luxury and its, its, its vices and, and, and really the wicked lifestyle that went on there. It would be sort of like, you know, Paul working, walking from like Oxford to Las Vegas. Okay, like so just a totally different context here as he walks down into the city. Now, you can go look this up later. The city sits in a, in a very, very important geographical point where a lot of commerce and a lot of military activity would have been coming through that, that little landmass there through the city of Corinth, okay? And, and the city of Corinth sat there, and in that day, if you had a city at an entranceway like that, that meant you could tax what was coming through. Okay, so Corinth was a very successful city. It was a, it drew a lot of people. There were a lot of Jews. There were a lot of soldiers. There were a lot of Greeks. People from all over the Roman Empire. This is this is just interesting. I, I guess when you go down around the Peloponnesian uh, Peninsula, there's a lot of um, like really heavy seas, dangerous waters down there. So rather than sailing around there, sailors would actually get out. They would come to the isthmus. And they would pick up the boat, they would have slaves pick up the boat and carry it across the isthmus rather than going around that Peloponnesian uh, peninsula, okay? So that just gives you an idea of the number of people who are traversing this area. And y'all, let me just say this too. This is very common in the scriptures, okay? God often takes his people to places where there's a lot of people coming through. And the most famous place is, is Israel. Israel is one of the most famous places in the world. Remember the Fertile Crescent from like seventh grade social studies? It's very important because Israel sits on this, this little tiny strip of land that goes from Egypt to Mesopotamia. And back then, and especially in the Old Testament, all of the commerce, all of the trade that's coming from Mesopotamia down to Egypt has to go through Israel. If you don't go through Israel, you're going through the Arabian Desert. Okay? And so God puts Israel in the spot 
right in the middle of this place where all of these people are traveling. And why does he do that? Because people are going to encounter the glory of God in that spot right there. So I think that's similar to what God is doing here providentially for him. God is sending Paul there to establish this church at a place where there's going to be a lot of opportunity for people all over the world. Okay? Don't know. The word of God went out through these apostles. I believe it went all over the world. I, I believe it went to India. It went to China. And so all of these traders that are coming through these important ports, they are encountering the gospel and they're taking it back out to where they live. Okay? And that's why, you know, when missionaries, you can read, you don't read about this stuff much. It's very interesting. The missionaries, you know, in, in the, like, thousands A.D., are going to places in Africa and India, and they're bringing the Word of God, and they're finding the Word of God's already there. Why is that? Because thousands of, hundreds of years ago, people were coming out from these places, these common places, and they were going all over the world, um, and they were spreading the gospel, okay? So when Paul would have walked into the city, he would have, he would have seen a mountain, or a large hill with a, with a temple on top, 2,000 feet high, it was almost impregnable, and on the top of that hill, it was called the Acrocorinthus, sat a temple to Venus. And impurity prevailed in that temple so much that it, it was actually said in that time you could find people to live like a Corinthian was to just be a debauched person. If, if you were a, you know, to say, well, that person is a Corinthian, it was to say that that person is just given over to wicked types of lifestyles. So that was the reputation of the Roman Empire, and these temples were just given over immorality. And one more thing, uh, it was a very beautiful city. It was known for its wealth. It was known for its refinement. So there were a lot of prosperous people there, but there were a lot of poor people there as well. And so there's a clash going on. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, this clash that's going on between the, the rich and the poor there in Corinth. There's still a city there. It it's, still goes by the same name, Corinth. It's a tiny little village. It's nothing like it was in its, um, in its, in its uh, glory days. So Paul, and, and imagine with me, so here we are, we're, you know, we're trying to start a church, that's what we're trying to do here. Imagine though if you're Paul, and you walk across the bridge from South Carolina into the city of Savannah, Georgia, for the very first time, and there's no Christians out of that church. Uh, there's no Christians, as far as you know, anywhere, you're just walking into a city for the first time. I mean, imagine what this must have been like for him. So he comes in, his task is, is monumental. Alright, so look at verses 2 and 3 of Acts chapter 18. But he found the Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come for, uh, from Italy with his wife Priscilla. But Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he, sit, and he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Okay? So Paul comes into Corinth, and he finds these two tent makers, probably more likely that they were um, they worked with hides, they were tanners. Okay, so they were they were working with, with skins. So he finds these Jews named Priscilla and Aquila, and they had been expelled from Rome. Okay? So it's interesting, there is a, a historical note. Yeah, the, the Roman historian Suetonius writes that under Emperor Claudius, he banished the Jews from Rome who were continually making disturbances at the instigation of Crestus. So these Jews get kicked out of Rome because this guy named Crestus is disturbing everything. What does Crestus sound like? Christ. 
the assumption is that the Jews in Rome are starting to give their lives to Christ. It's causing this great disturbance in the synagogues, as Jews are wont to do. And, and so at some point, this guy Claudius just says, all right, all of you, you're nuts. Get out. And he, and he casts the Jews out of Rome. And again, y'all, this is, this is not by accident. God is sending people all over the world. Okay, so this Priscilla and Aquila, they, they come out of Rome, they go to Corinth, and there they are waiting when Paul walks across into the peninsula. So he meets up with them, Paul's practices, he goes into the city, he finds the synagogue. Why does he do that? He's looking for God-fearing people, he wants to find people who already know the Old Testament, and there were, there were synagogues everywhere. So he goes into the synagogue, he has this plan, um, in, in verse 4, it says he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. Okay? Um, and so we talked about this a few weeks ago uh, regarding the, the cross of Christ. Um, let's see. Verse 6, I think it is, and, he, and when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments, and he said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. For now I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there, and he went to the house of a man named Titius. Justice, a worshiper of God, his house was next door to the synagogue. So he goes to the Jews. They don't want any part of it. So he says, that's fine. I'm just going to go to the Gentiles. Um, but his ministry with Jews is not entirely fruitless. Look at verse uh, 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. All right? So... Christmas, who's one of the rulers of the synagogue, he does give his life to Christ. He comes out from among them. And then verses 9 through 11, we talked about this a couple weeks ago too. And the Lord said to Paul, one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Alright, all that to say, Corinth was a really good place so Saul, Paul lives there a year and a half, and he stays, and he teaches the people. Uh, I think he needed encouragement. I think that's why he gets this vision. I think probably at some point he's like, what am I doing here? God gives him this vision, says, go on speaking, I'm with you, no one's going to harm you. Um, now, you can look down at verses 12 through 17 later. There's a tumultuous time where they try to kick him out, and this guy named Gallio says, you know, no, you, know, you guys are acting crazy. Let's him stay. And so, so Paul stays in the, in the city there for a year and a half, and he has some, some Roman protection at that point. Okay, so that's that's the founding of the church. So according to Acts 18:18, 18, 18, Paul leaves Corinth and he goes then to Ephesus. After this, Paul stayed days, many days longer, and he took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. So Priscilla and Aquila go with him. Um, they head out. Um, and then, let me read to you from 1 Corinthians 5, 9. So, uh, let me, I'll say this. This is confusing. Are you ready for this? Paul wrote four letters that we know of to the Corinthians. Okay? We only have two of them. His first letter is not our 1 Corinthians. His first letter does not exist. So let me read to you from 1 Corinthians 5, 9. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter... Not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral people of the world or the 
greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters, since then you would need to get out of the world. Okay? So we don't have this letter. But apparently Paul is already getting word that the Corinthians aren't doing so great. And he feels the need to write to them to say, y'all need to stop, you know, putting up with all this immorality within the church. Okay? And he's clear. It's within the church. He's not saying, go and call out the immorality at the Temple of Venus. He's saying, if these people are in the church, you don't need to be, you don't need to be putting up with their immoral lifestyle. Okay? So according to 1 Corinthians 1.11, then, Paul hears of factions, somebody named Chloe. He says, Chloe's household had told me that you guys are all divided against one another. And he receives this, this series of questions from the Corinthians. And so that's when he sits down and he writes the letter that we know as 1 Corinthians. Alright, so that's that's so the first letter we don't have. The second letter that he writes to them is known as 1 Corinthians, and this is probably written around 55 AD. Alright, so we're still tracking here. And, and y'all, I'll just tell you, the point I'm making is Corinth is a mess. It's an absolute mess. Like Paul is just really digging in with these people. And so, according to 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 2, 5 through 11, then, there's another major crisis in the church. Paul sends Timothy to visit on his behalf, and then Paul makes what he calls a difficult visit to Corinth. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child of the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in the church. And then later on, this is 2 Corinthians 2, 1. He says, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one I have pain? Alright? So the situation in 1 Corinthians, in Corinth, is just getting worse and worse. He sends Timothy. That doesn't help. He himself goes this painful visit. If he calls it a painful visit, and then he sends a third letter. The third letter does not exist. Alright? So the, just so you'll know, we have letters 2 and 4, but we call them 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Alright? So that's, that's what we have. But in 2 Corinthians 2, 4, he says, I wrote you out of much affliction and anguish and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know about the abundant love that I have for you. So out of his anguish, he writes this severe letter, and he sends it off, and he's worried. He, he's real worried. He's like, I don't know how this is going to sit. And, and he, he actually, it, it says that he's in anguish of soul as he waits to find out how they received this letter. So that brings us then to 2 Corinthians 7, which I read to you earlier, where Paul encountered Titus, who brings good news and tells him, the worst is over. So that's where he says, you know, I, I, for God who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus with this good news about the church in Corinth. Okay, so all that to say, I know that's, I know, you know, probably, what I want you to know from this is this. Paul is so excited to hear from Titus that they have received his letter well and that they have repented they're accepting him and his apostleship, and that they demonstrated godly repentance. And so he writes letter number four, what we know as 2 Corinthians. Most people think that it was written some
sometime around 57 AD. So 10 years later, if he walked into uh, Corinth 48, 49, about 10 years later, he's writing 2 Corinthians after 10 years of difficulty with this church. He is finally able to praise God that they have embraced his teaching. So, so as we go along, the first seven chapters are going to deal with everything that's happened in Corinth. And so this is going to be an opportunity for us to get Paul's heart. We're going to see Paul's heart as a pastor, as a minister of the gospel, as he passionately just, just explains how excited he is that they have finally understood what he was trying to say to them. Okay? And then verses 8 and 9, he's going to say, okay, now you guys, I'm sorry, chapters 8 and 9, now you guys, let's get going with ministry, and he's going to talk to them about giving, and about um, how they need to get back into that, and then chapters 10 through 13 are going to be a defense of Paul's ministry. Y'all, this is a this is by far Paul's most personal letter. We're going to learn about ministry, and the gospel, and God, and giving, and, and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, but we're going to learn about it all as Paul sort of pours out his heart personally to the Corinthians. So, in light of all this, why all of the struggle and pain? The simple question I want to ask, why so much struggle? Why does Paul exert so much energy in a church that has caused him so much grief for almost 10 years? And, and you know, think about it. People could respond in two different ways. People could say, first of all, Paul, move on. Like, they're not listening to you. Just move on and leave them behind. And then secondly, people could respond to Paul in another way and say, stop bugging those people. Like, let them live how they want to live. You know, why are you causing them so much grief? Just let, let them go. Which brings us then to these first two verses in 1 Corinthians. And I just quickly want to answer that question. So, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians. I just want to do that all the way the whole time. All right, first, know that I mean 2 Corinthians. Okay, I mean 2 Corinthians. And if I say Paul is writing to 2 Corinthians, you know I mean Paul is writing to the Corinthians. Okay, so look with me real quick. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Acadia, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So why all the trouble? And I think simply this. Who does Paul work for? Whose church is it? And who's in the church? So who does Paul work for? He works for Jesus Christ. He says he is Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. We're going to see in this letter, Paul has to defend himself against the so-called super apostles. He doesn't have the right rhetorical skill. They're going to, you know, they say things about Paul like he is not impressive. Like his letters, his letters are impressive, but in person, he's just not that much to look at. We're not that impressed. And they, and they don't like the way he talks. You know, they go into the city squares and they hear these great preachers and they're like, Paul, you're nothing like that. And, and, and so he has to defend his credibility, and he has to say, no, I'm an apostle. I'm an apostle. I've seen the risen Lord. I saw him on the road to Damascus. He gave me a job to do. He is the one who told me, I want you to go to the Gentiles. And so that's, that's what Paul is defending. I, I am here. I'm keeping on working with you. I love you. I'm passionate about 
about you because I've been given this job to do by Jesus Christ. So remember what we said about church government? Who is the head of the church? It's not the pastor. It's not the elders. The head of the church is Jesus Christ. He is the chief pastor. He is the chief shepherd. Pastors and elders are under shepherds. The only authority any man in the church has is delegated authority from the Lord Jesus. The only way I can say I have authority is to say, thus saith the Lord. The authority comes from the Word of God. It does not come from any individual. And just so you'll know, we all work for Christ. We all serve our Master, Jesus Christ. None of us has had, probably, I'm guessing, I'm guessing, no. I'm going to go ahead and say, none of us have had the experience of encountering the, living, the risen Jesus Christ on the road and having him say, I want you to go and do this. Okay, but what we have had is we have come into a relationship with him, and we have his commands, and we have his example. Okay, so, so we can say with Paul, not that we're apostles, but that, that we are people who are here to do what Jesus Christ has commanded us to do. And as we get weary, and as Hope Bible Church might possibly sometimes resemble Corinth, we remember that this is the work that Jesus Christ has given us to do. Okay? Secondly, whose church is it? He says, to the church of God that is at Corinth. It is God's church. Acts 20, 28 says, Be careful, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. So very simply, Paul labors so hard, he works so hard with the Corinthians because he is entrusted with something precious. It belongs to God. I got engaged at Disneyland. On the pond I went, and I got the ring, and I was trying to surprise Erica, which is really hard to do these days. Pretty much everybody knows what's going on. So I, I went, and I got her from work, and I took her to Disneyland, and I got this ring. And so I wore these really stupid-looking pants, because they had a lot of zip pockets. And I was going to, I zipped the ring into the pockets, because I, I mean, I'm carrying a ring, you know, I'm carrying a, an engagement ring, um, and, I, and I, so we go, and I'm like, I gotta unload this thing as fast as possible, you know, because I don't want to have to walk around all day long with this ring in my pocket, so, I don't know, I'm like, Space Mountain, you sit next to each other on Space Mountain, but that doesn't seem like a really good place to try to get a ring for somebody, um, so I, I said, I'll go to the mansion, because it's, you know, you're sitting there in those little those little buggies. And so we get about halfway through the Haunted Mansion. If you're familiar with the Haunted Mansion, it's the, the place where the ghosts are like dancing down below you. And I said, um, will you marry me? And she said, yes. And I said, good, here, I got you this. And I just tried to get rid of it as fast as possible. You know, and I, I had this thing, and I was, you know, I had this, this thing. But I, when you have something that is precious, you handle it with care. Because it matters. You're very aware of it. And I think Paul is very aware of the Corinthian church because it's precious and it belongs to God. So how do we handle God's church? We handle God's church exactly like he tells us to. And, and y'all remember, the church is people. It's not a building. 
When we speak of handling the church, we're talking about people. We don't have a temple that we're trying to keep pristine. We're dealing with people's lives. Which brings us to a final point. Who is the church? The church is the saints. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth with all the saints in the whole of Achaia. So the word saint, it just means, it's the Greek word hagias. It means holy ones. As bad as things were in Corinth, 1 Corinthians, really bad stuff. Paul refers to them as saints. Y'all know, through all the stuff, through the sexual immorality and the disputes and the questions about marriage, they were taking the Lord's Supper and they were like gorging themselves on the Lord's Supper and other people were going hungry. The only time where Paul ever questions whether or not they're believers is in 1 Corinthians 15 where some of them are denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He still refers to them as saints. They are saints. They are holy ones. Each individual in this room, if you are a follower of Christ, we are all saints. And that is why we are committed to caring for individuals. Y'all, I've, I've, I've been over this verse. I'm going to keep going over this verse over and over, and over again. It's so important to me. Colossians 1.28. We proclaim him, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ... You are a saint. You are one of the holy ones of God. Every single individual in this room is important to God because there are no second-class saints. And that's why Paul takes it so seriously. All right, let me conclude. Two quick points, and then we're done. A lot of ambient noise in this room. Just air blowing and fans, so I'll, I'll wrap up. If, if you're not able to hear um, as well as you'd like, I'm sorry about that this morning. But All right, first of all, how can something so precious to God be so difficult? I, I think about my children. How can something I love so much be so difficult? But just like our children, the church is worth it. We don't ever look at our children and throw up our hands and be like, I'm done with this. Right? So the church is worth it. It's a thing these days, you know? People are just leaving. People are just leaving the church. There's a lot of good preachers online. You can sit in your lazy boy at home and you can hear somebody preach a way better sermon than this one. And you don't have to deal with any people in the process. And I think Paul would be absolutely horrified at the thought. So we can't let the difficulty of dealing with people keep us on the sidelines. And we are welcoming you to be a part of the process. Right? We are not professional ministers here to tend to the flock. We want to, we want to welcome you. Another, another verse we've gone over over and over again. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him with spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So the church is important, and the church is worth it, even if it's difficult, because it's the church of God we are the saints of God gathered together. And then secondly, this. I think Savannah is a hard place to do ministry. So that's one of the reasons why I kind of wanted to know where everybody's from. I've been, I'm, I'm from here. I've been back in Savannah for 10 years. Human nature is basically the same here as it was in Corinth. 
And so Paul struggled mightily in ministry in Corinth, and, and so, so might we. And if many of the same issues that presented themselves in Corinth are going to present themselves in Savannah, idolatry, deep commitments to lifestyles that are destructive. I, I even that thing we said about Corinth being this, this sort of you know fashionable, beautiful city. You know, people come to Savannah and they see the beautiful downtown and they think, oh, what a beautiful city. And yet, you know, spiritually, it's it's all it's just it's whitewashed tombs. That's that's what we're living with. That's yo, and I, I I even as I think back and I I consider the, the sort of the history things that have been taught from pulpits in Savannah for years that have been used to justify wicked lifestyles and treating people wickedly. When I first came back to Savannah, somebody told me that Savannah has a reputation for chewing off pastors. And I mentioned you I I came back ten years ago. At the time, I didn't know a ton of Bible-teaching churches, and I think God providentially brought several men here around the same time. And I, I can tell you, three of those men who came back at that same time, they're, they're no longer in ministry here in Savannah. And, and it's tempting. It's tempting in a place like Savannah, with a lot of old Southern religion, to say, um, you know what, maybe there's some easier, uh, easier shepherding fields somewhere else. But these people, just like the people in Corinth, they need the gospel, and they need to be saved. And there are also, I think, many Christians in Savannah who, they're believers, but nobody's ever told them that the gospel will help them in their lives right now. The gospel has help for all the crazy things that are going on in Corinth. And the gospel has help for all the crazy things 